0: and happy summer to all you royals, rebels, and romantics out there. This summer, we're cruising through history as I share some of the highlights of the talks I gave while cruising through the British Isles. So sit back and enjoy as we go cruising through history. Where do we look when we want to see Tudor politics playing out? Perhaps the battlefield, where Henry Tudor defeated Richard III, or perhaps the Tower of London, where Anne Boleyn was received as queen and then less than three years later lost her head. Maybe Hampton Court Palace, where Catherine Howard reportedly ran down the hall screaming for her husband, Henry VIII. Greenwich, Richmond, Nonsuch, Whitehall, any of those Tudor palaces would be a great location for Tudor politics. But at one point, in the reign of Elizabeth I, we would do well to look to the theater. It's 1599, 11 years after that glorious moment of the defeat of the Armada. But the glorious moment didn't really last. And 11 years later, the war with Spain is still going on. Now, Shakespeare had become a popular playwright, and he and his company had been a little dissatisfied with the rates, rising rates for the previous landlord. So they had taken the makings of the original theater, moved it across the river, and reassembled it into the globe. So in 1599, there are a couple of plays that might have opened the globe, Julius Caesar and Henry V. So the century is about to change and people have some of that natural concern. In addition, 11 years now of a war with Spain that just seems never to be ending, and an elderly queen. We're not supposed to say that out loud, but people know that Elizabeth, despite her efforts, will not live forever. And so when you look at Julius Caesar and Henry V, both of those are plays where Shakespeare is exploring ideas about transition of power, vacuum of power, what happens when a monarch dies, all of those questions. Of course, he doesn't ask them about Elizabeth, but he asks them about previous monarchs. And so that's all happening and going on at the Globe. Now, I'd like to look particularly at Henry V. It had been a popular play Throughout Elizabeth's reign, in fact, much earlier than Shakespeare, productions had been produced under the Walsingham Theatre Company to go around and proclaim the value of an English ruler in comparison, say, to Mary Queen of Scots, who was making her play at that time. And it also enabled Walsingham to travel or have Some of his watchers travel with those theater companies. But the bottom line was Henry V was a popular play. And so when Shakespeare put it on the stage, he knew he would get a lot of people there. Now, Shakespeare's play is, yes, these great moments of the speech at Agincourt and a, yes, England forever kind of feel but also, Shakespeare has a little bit of complication, because he also has that horrifying speech by the king at Harfleur. So, Shakespeare, as always, is a little more complicated than some of his contemporaries. But one of the things that happens in Shakespeare's play is there a, there's a direct contemporary reference that doesn't happen very often, but in Henry V, it does. While speaking of the great rejoicing following Henry V's victory, Shakespeare includes these lines. Were now the general of our gracious empress, as in good time he may, from Ireland coming, bringing rebellion broached on his sword, how many would the peaceful city quit to welcome him? In the world of the play the king being celebrated is Henry V. But Shakespeare is stepping right into the time of the audience to mention the gracious empress, of course, that would be Queen Elizabeth herself, the general who is in Ireland, and that would be the Earl of Essex, and the rebellion that's going on in Ireland at that moment in 1599. In other words, Shakespeare is anticipating the glorious return of Essex and how everyone will celebrate that, much as they had celebrated Henry V. Now, Shakespeare does not usually use contemporary references. That can get people in trouble because, of course, it does not quite work out that way. And I wonder if perhaps Shakespeare maybe wished he hadn't done so. But in any case, let's take a look at that and see why Shakespeare would have, what? what is that reference about and why might he have decided to include it? It's such a departure for him to include something contemporary. Let's take a look at it. So again... The Empress is Elizabeth the I, and he's always praising her. That's sort of a given in the world of Shakespeare. And then as he goes into the reign of James the First, of course, the plays are very complimentary about him. So if you want to get past the censors, that makes sense. But we have this general, we have Essex in Ireland, and we have the rebel whose rebellion is about we hope, to be put down. And that is Hugh O'Neill, the Earl of Tyrone. So let's talk about these characters and what's going on in Ireland and why this has become such a problem moment where Essex is over there, hopefully quelling the rebellion. So if we look at the history of England and Ireland, and of course it continues to be problematic when I was there this summer, continues to be problematic, but I'm not talking about what's happening today. I'm talking about the past. And if we look all the way back to 1155, we see Henry II managing to convince the Pope that he, Henry, will be able to reform the Irish church, and the best step to doing that is to militarily control Ireland so he does so. After 20 years in 1175, Henry agrees to the Treaty of Windsor when there is a high king of Ireland, but there is territory and tribute being paid to Henry II. Now, the Pope does say no eventually when Henry II tries to make his son John, whose nickname is John Lackland, because he's the only of Henry II's son who doesn't have land by this time, he wants to make him Lord of Ireland when John's only 10. And the Pope says, well, you can make him Lord of Ireland, but you absolutely cannot crown him King of Ireland, which is what Henry really wanted to do. Well, things continue to happen. In 1315, we have Edward Bruce coming down from Scotland, coming over from Scotland and really destroying the economy. And the Irish chiefs were becoming alienated by the English government and rebellions were happening in the 14th century. In the 15th century, there was a resurgence of powers with the O'Neills and the O'Donnells and this Gaelic revival. And during the early Tudor reign... Henry VIII, of course, gets involved. And the idea is this this area of the Pale, which was the English-controlled area. You've heard the phrase, I think, beyond the Pale. Well, that's what it originally referred to. And there were challenges to the crown and Silken Thomas, who was so-called because he used armored gallo glasses, or these elite mercenary soldiers who had silk fringes on their helmets, he used them, and he was fighting against the king. He'd heard his father had been executed, so he renounced his allegiance to Henry VIII, and Henry VIII sent forces over there and decided Henry VIII, you know, in the mid-1530s, Henry VIII was really busy getting married a whole bunch of times, and he just decided he'd had enough with all these rebellions, so. In 1541, he declares himself King of Ireland because, of course, Henry VIII would do that. And he has military garrisons in Ireland increasing, and so he is really attempting to control the country in that way. After his death, during the reigns of Mary and Edward, there were a series of rebellions. Both um, Mary tried some martial government, as did Elizabeth, and it wasn't working. And Elizabeth was trying to settle Ireland with people from England. But after the communication, the excommunication of Elizabeth by the pope in 1570 the catholics in ireland more so than the catholics in england really rose up against elizabeth and they were not accepting her as queen anymore they believed that their religious beliefs trumped their you know devotion to their country which they weren't really sure about they owed elizabeth that much allegiance anyway so they were actually going to rise up against her and so the essex campaign was around 1599 he was sent to Ireland as the lieutenant and the governor ger- g- governor general sorry the governor general he was elizabeth's favorite and he had you know some experience in a military battle he had done well in the netherlands but he had not been in charge he had not been the leader he had not been the strategist and that's what was needed in Ireland Elizabeth needed somebody to go over there and solve the problem, and he was sent with an army of 17,000 men and orders to attack. But when he got to Ireland, Essex took a different course. He decided to just begin creating knighthoods, and so he was dubbing knights. He dubbed 38 knights. Now, this infuriated Elizabeth because he was doing so as if he had her authority and he did not. Now, of course, today we have seen representatives stand in for Her Majesty the Queen with the Queen's authority. We've seen Prince Charles and Princess Anne and Prince William, the Duke of Cambridge, perform some of these ceremonies, but that is with the Queen's permission and with her authority. Essex did not have that. In fact, Elizabeth did not like creating knights. She was very selective and used the creation of a knighthood as a way of creating a a relationship where someone owed her something. Well, if Essex is over there creating these 38 knights from his favorites, that doesn't gain Elizabeth anything. And she's furious. And in fact, there was a rumor rising that the only time Essex ever drew his sword was to create another knight. He was certainly not drying it to fight for the queen. So there were a series of these ineffective campaigns. And Elizabeth's godson, Sir John Harrington, describes Elizabeth as being in great rage. And she grabbed a sword and started waving it around, decrying what Essex was doing. She was just furious. And she sent him letters saying, you know, get to work, do what you're over there to do. And And he realized that his campaign was not going well. It was very ineffective. And so he made a deal with Tyrone, um, the Earl of Tyrone, the enemy. Essex is over there making deals. And the Queen wrote to him again and said, you've got to stay there and you've got to fix this. And he decided, no, this isn't going well for me. So he came back to England in complete defiance of what the Queen had told him. Now, Essex knew that he was taking a chance coming back from to England from Ireland, but he had also taken a chance convincing the Queen to send him to Ireland because as a young man, when his father died, he had become the ward of William Cecil and had grown up alongside Cecil's sons, including Robert Cecil. Fast forward from that childhood to the 1590s and in the late 1590s, Robert Cecil replaces his father, William Cecil, as the leader of Elizabeth's government and the greatest rival to Devereux's influence with the queen. Had Devereux, the Earl of Essex, been successful in Ireland, he could have returned the way Shakespeare described, with rebellion broached on his sword to great rejoicing, and that would have ensured him that place at Elizabeth's side, a great voice in her government. On the other hand, the way things were actually going in Ireland, he knew he was losing support among the council. He knew that Robert Cecil was gaining support in his absence, so he felt like he had to get back to England. And he believed he still had The personal favor, even if his political favor was a little bit in question, he believed he still had the personal favor of the queen. So he went right to her. He went right to the monarch. Now, I don't know how he possibly got through the guards, but the story is that he came right into her bedchamber early in the morning before Elizabeth was dressed for the world. By the late 1590s, and this is 1599, Elizabeth took at least two hours to get ready for her day. She wore layers of the finest garments, she was adorned in the finest jewels, and she was caked in terribly dangerous, white, poisonous, toxic makeup all over her face and her neck and her hands. And so it was very much an image that Elizabeth presented to her public, and that was not what Essex saw. He burst in and saw her, and it was almost as if, now this is not an exact quote, he didn't even recognize her. It was almost as if he was saying, who's the old lady sitting on the bed, and where's the queen? He was just shocked by her appearance, and she was furious that he was there. Later, when he was really angry at the queen, he was reported to have said that her policies were as crooked as her carcass. And so describing her physical nature, this is the monarch, this is strong monarch, strong country, and to describe her as weak and crooked was a serious problem. So he was taken to trial for his military failure, found guilty, deprived of office, and sent into confinement. And when the renewal for that monopoly on sweet wines, which provided the bulk of his income, came up, the queen canceled it. And this infuriated Essex even more. He decided to rebel against the queen, and he began to gather followers. Now, Robert Cecil had continued to be a big rival for Essex. And so Essex really was targeting Cecil as a key figure in this rebellion. And his stated goal was to remove Cecil from power and get power to himself. And he was really trying to undermine things. And Cecil believed, or at least chose to believe, that what Essex was ultimately after was the throne for himself— You know, all of these questions about the succession opened that possibility. Eventually, and it probably isn't going to be that long in the future because she's old, eventually the queen's going to die. And who will take over? And so Essex may have been making a play for the throne. At least that's what Cecil decided. And so he set out to approach Essex completely as a threat. As a traitor, and he was moving against him, and at the same time, Essex was rallying supporters to his cause. And at this moment, we are going to go back to the theater. Now, we've moved past any chance that Essex was going to be returning in that glorious way described in Henry V, but we're going to look at another king that Shakespeare brings to life on stage. Essex decided to have. Shakespeare's company perform, we believe, Richard II. Now, this was an older play. It was very unusual for an older play to sort of be recycled in its regular, ordinary standing form. And so it's it's a bit of a surprise. Why would he decide to have Richard II played? Well, Richard II was a very controversial play. Shakespeare's play had been allowed to be performed But the key scene where Richard II is deposed as king was censored. It was not allowed to be performed on the stage. And when the play was printed, it was not supposed to be included in any printed copies. Of course, some copies exist. And so we today do still have those scenes. And you've probably seen them in performances. But in Elizabeth's time, that was forbidden because she did not believe it was safe. To have a story of a king, a monarch being deposed, and that, and then things just moving on. That was terrifying to her. And that's the play Essex decided to have performed. He was hoping people would see just like the country had to move on from Richard II, the country now had to move on again. And it really was a problem in the play. So he has this play performed, and he uses this notion of getting rid of a king that wasn't working anymore, and he tries to rally the troops. And here are the lines, some of the lines, from Richard II that are so problematic for Elizabeth and her government. Here, Cousin seize the crown. So at this point, Richard II is giving the crown away to Henry Bolingbroke, his cousin. And it's all going to happen very peacefully. There aren't wars over this, but at the end of the day, there's going to be a new monarch. This is a problem. Here, cousin, seize the crown. Here, cousin, on this side, my hand, and on that side, yours. Now is this golden crown like a deep well that owes two buckets, filling one another. The emptier, dancing in the air, the other down, unseen, and full of water. That bucket down and full of tears am I, drinking my griefs, while you mount up on high. And then, a few lines later, God save King Harry, unkinged, Richard says. So this is a terrifying thing for Elizabeth, and Essex knew that in putting this play on the stage. So Essex stages his rebellion, and it is not successful. Even though the people are concerned about the succession and do have questions, they are not en masse ready to rise up against Elizabeth and put Essex on the throne. So he is captured, and he is tried, and he is sent to the tower. So he has had this amazing journey in 1599 and into 1600 and 1601, where he's been at the heart of court. He's been at Elizabeth's side. He's been in Ireland. He's been in her bedchamber. That was really not a good thing. He's been in his home. He's been back at court and now he finds himself at the tower. And reportedly, when discussing all of this that was happening, Elizabeth says to her almoner, I am Richard II. Know you not that? In other words, Elizabeth knew throughout her reign that her hold on the throne was dependent on the goodwill of her people and on her people wanting her there. And so she spent so much time and effort nurturing that relationship with her people and knew she was vulnerable to their turning as the people had turned on Richard II. It's also an interesting idea to look at the power of the theater. I mean, it was so powerful. That's why the Puritans and others were always trying to close it down that Shakespeare was able to create the expectation of this wonderful moment of the return of Essex during the play of Henry V. That didn't quite pan out that way. But also, in his portrayal of Richard II, and especially in the language, Richard II himself has some of the most beautiful language in Shakespeare, but the power of the cost of losing the crown, what that does to Richard II is so poignant and so powerful that it was frightening to Elizabeth, the anointed, settled, steady monarch who had been on the throne for all those years. So there is this really important and vital connection between Shakespeare, his plays, and the politics in the court Of Elizabeth I, particularly around this fascinating story of the Earl of Essex. He was, of course, eventually beheaded on Tower Green, and he does go down as the last person to be beheaded within the walls of the Tower. There were still some beheadings on Tower Hill, but he was the last person beheaded at that spot within the walls of the Tower. And so it's a really poignant story at the end. Of course, within a couple of years, Elizabeth herself dies. The succession question has been settled and we know that Robert Cecil had moved on, you know, in those final months of Elizabeth's reign, just as she had always feared most people were moving on, their eyes were going to James the Sixth of Scotland, who would come down and become James the I of England, who would succeed Elizabeth. It turns out the succession was happened peacefully. And, you know, things happened without any battles or any bloodshed. So the succession worked, but she did see her followers sort of fading away at the end. And many people believe that the loss of Essex, her really her final devoted, loving, quote, quote, because I don't think he really loved her, but he played the part. He played that part of courtly love with her to the hilt and he was the last one really to do so. He was one of the last real friends that she lost at the end of her life before she died in March of 1603. Shakespeare, on the other hand, carried on into the reign of James I and wrote some of his most dramatic and exciting works, And he did play a little bit with some of the politics of James if you look at a play like the Scottish play and all of the ideas around equivocation. But I think one of the most political uses of Shakespeare and ways that Shakespeare's play sort of feed out or or put on stage Tudor politics is in the time around 1509 into 1600, 1601 with the idea of Essex in Henry V, and then with the reality of Essex when he attempts with Richard II to overthrow and is unsuccessful doing so. So, thank you for joining me as we look at a couple of Shakespearean kings at the heart of Tudor politics. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Royals, Rebels, and Romantics as we cruise through history this summer. I so appreciate your listening. Please consider leaving a rating, subscribing, maybe sharing with a friend, and even becoming a patron. I would really appreciate it. And let's keep shaking up history together.